there's no doubt that the old politics of the two-party system is now gone and over. I don't need lectures from you or anybody on, on the Sinn Féin side of the house. We're very reluctant to kind of say what's red lines, but, but we do have to take climate seriously. There's going to be constant criticism, there's going to be a lot of disappointment, and whoever goes into government is going to be unpopular. Okay. Hello and you're very welcome to your politics podcast from RT News. I'm Paul Cunningham. Joining me today, we have got Tommy Meskell, the star of the future when it comes to RT political coverage. We've got me all hands, some has been. <laughs> Sorry, Michal. You were the and future, also, You were the future. <laughs> At one stage, I was the future. And we've also got Sarkin Nurida from North RTE and also TG Carr. One of the big things which has been happening um, this week is in relation to cost of living, specifically the issue of the price that people are paying when it comes to their supermarket tills. Michal, at the end of the week, where does it stand? We had got some sense that the government was going to take action. And where are we now? Well, like when you think back to it, was it Charlie McCreevy who kind of came up with what people really require and basic things were like food, groceries, a bit of GA and maybe a holiday. Uh, so kind of on that template. Okay, this, I'm, this just week, to, I'm just trying to think. <laughs> well, that was, does, it, does, does that hit all the bases? That, what he said, the bases were, were quite narrow, wasn't it? And that, that worked for quite a while. But so on the basis of this week, there's problems, isn't there, on yeah. all fronts there. I mean, yeah. being able to see the matches uh, and being able to buy the food at, at a certain price and what are government going to do about it? Well, they're, they're serious. They're definitely serious and okay. they're looking at it very closely. Uh, but it's, it's not clear if that if the supermarkets and the shops don't listen in the way that in the past when bankers were marched into government buildings and told to do certain things when they didn't listen, uh, what can government really do? So I suppose that's the key question. It does seem like the next step, it isn't price controls uh, because the Competition and Consumer Protection Commission doesn't believe in price controls, therefore government doesn't believe in them at the moment either. So therefore, is it something about getting an assessment on how much profit per item that the shops are making? If the government have that, maybe they could perhaps put more pressure on them, whether that's naming them and naming and shaming. Well, you were talking Portuguese to the the Irish audience. Portuguese model. Portuguese to the Irish audience just last week. And I was intrigued by the different level of emphasis that followed from that meeting in which the government said they'd got buy-in from the retail sector vis-a-vis reducing prices. And yet when you talk to the retailers, the retailers saying that when they were able to, when they were able to, they would reduce prices. So what does that leave the audience with? What do they understand is going to happen by this great deadline of June the 21st? Six weeks time. Yeah, you do feel unless something fairly radical happens, government are going to have to move in that direction of finding some other uh, tool to to pressurise the the, the supermarkets. And that is assessing and gathering information about profits. Tommy Meskell, we have a political thing, which is that the government says it's engaging jaw-jaw with the retail sector. What's the sense from, from an opposition point of view who clearly are feeling it would seem just like standing back that, more could be done. They're calling for that stick approach, aren't they? More than are the they not happy, approach. Tommy? They're not happy. No, <laughs> you might be surprised to hear. Uh, and we've had various suggestions from them, such as the price caps. Government saying that's in reality that's not practical. The CCPC also as well uh, giving that finding. Uh, Jed Nash, Labour's finance spokesperson, suggesting perhaps you could tax the windfall profits of supermarkets. Although as we speak here today, the Dole is also debating this agri-price regulator. So perhaps in the medium to longer term that might have a role that seeks to to shine a light on the supply process. We, we know the prices that the farmer gets 
we know the price that the supermarket sells at. It's it's everything in the middle uh, that we're, we're less sure about. Uh, Commercially price sensitive information. That's well, why you go to the Portuguese model. The Portuguese <laughs> model is where it's at. And that was something that Simon Coveney was suggesting was possible. But was he able to say or give any indication, Miolahan, that this was something that could happen soon? Well, they leave it for six weeks, don't they? And then they look to, to it after that point. Right. OK. And that it, it was interesting, uh, you know, what you're saying about the, the prices and all that. Holly Cairns came out with an alarming statistic, the leader of the Social Democrats, Paul, as you well know. Yes. But um, when she was talking about this yesterday and she made the point that none of the multiples post their profits. We don't know about profits there, but the figures that we do have for one of the German multiples going back to um, two years ago, I think that it showed that they made 71 percent more profit from their stores in Ireland than they did from their stores in the UK. Like that is pretty extraordinary. Ireland known as Treasure Island, apparently, <laughs> by, by some supermarket. Absolutely. I think that was yeah, Aldi. Yeah. I think yeah. that was Aldi. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it is, as you said, it is one of the things in which the um, retailers would tell you that there is this fierce competition, fierce competition in relation to the um, different uh, supermarket outlets and what they charge and a suspicion from the people who are going in and paying the, the bill every week that maybe it isn't quite as fierce as they thought. Yeah, they must be making a big profit. Obviously, they wouldn't be here if they weren't making a massive profit out of it. So, you know, I don't know how the government are going to, how whether they can force them to reveal the profits that they're making. Because on the other hand, it's alarming to hear a representative from the farming community on Morning Ireland this morning and saying, look, we can't have a situation again where the farmers are the ones who are being squeezed. It's not that long ago that they were out on Marion Square protesting about the price of beef and the price of lamb and, you know, that's yeah. complaining that they're always the people who are being squeezed when the supermarkets are being pressurised to lower their prices, that the supermarkets go straight to the farmers and tell them to reduce their prices. And we heard this morning, you know, the talk about farmers having to get out of business because the the profit margin on selling carrots or whatever it is is so low. So, you know, the, yeah. the government have a responsibility here to come up with a system that works. Well, Tommy Mesco, one of the things that we're hearing is that um, both from the retailers and also the expectation from the government itself is that prices will come down over the course of the year. As the commodity prices uh, reduce, uh, that they will be hopeful that that would feed in into the end price. Uh, they've also made the point that uh, grocery inflation or food inflation across the, the euro area uh, has actually been much higher in Ireland. Uh, across the EU, it's been 27%. Uh, in Ireland, over the past two years, it's been 17%. Uh, they take uh, 15 EU countries that are similar in makeup to Ireland. They show the rate of inflation, food inflation in each country, and they say that Ireland is at the bottom of that table. And they're also making the point that when prices did go up, that, that retailers were slow actually to put them up. Uh, and they're saying really what's happening here in Ireland is fierce competition. And when they can bring down the prices, they will bring down the prices. And that the reason that, that they're all seemingly doing it at the same time on different products, we saw milk, we saw bread, for example, at 10 cent reduction, that that is price matching, that they're just they're watching the competition closely. When one retailer moves it down, the other one follows quickly. When How much cast did this story? They actually now a good, like a real prepared presenter. They had the items that were gone up and fall <laughs> and they'd hand them around to the presenters. And they'd say, how, how much has this gone up by in the last year? That oh, would have been a good one. Well, 
Next time. What I'd like time. to say, Michael Lahan, when the prices that, moderate, we'll that. Michael Lahan <laughs> and Sorkin Urida have notes in front of them. Tommy Meskel doesn't. I never use notes. I never Tommy Meskel doesn't. I never so I'm use far notes. more. I'm, I, the level of confidence that Tommy Meskel has is uh, above and beyond. But <laughs> the reason Lahan, I have it, it's for this phrase <laughs> that I'm going to put to you later. Paul, it has been a landmark day for offshore wind energy. Discuss. Yes, so we will get that come sentence. to that in around 10 <laughs> yeah, minutes I'm time. I'm going to hand it to you there then so you Thank can you. kind of just help just you out. Because <laughs> I might require it. Um, just on this, how much pressure is the government going to be? We've heard from the Minister of State, Neil Richmond, that they are going after these retailers applying pressure. We had the Taoiseach Leo Varadkar telling us um, Fine Gael Parliamentary Party members a clear message had been sent and so you can certainly see that Fine Gael, indeed the wider coalition is talking tough on this issue but like what? Act- how many arrows do they have in the quiver? How strong of a position do they actually have? Not, not strong at all really. I, think. I mean I suppose what the supermarkets will say is if we don't follow what we're being told to do what can happen to us legally and if not a lot can happen legally well I think that's the way it goes then. I suppose for government, they can be seen to be taking action in these few weeks and hope that at some point in the next three months or so that those prices do begin to moderate, as is quite possible. And so therefore, the action, they can be seen to do something in the lead up to that. Politically, it might just be that. And let's change topic. Um, another issue um, which we've heard week after week after week is the question, Sora, can you read that, of housing? In this, we've had various different iterations of it. Um, this week, it follows on from that report from Malone and Threshold about how the private rental market simply isn't geared up and tooled up to assist people who are of a certain age mm-hmm. and are looking towards their retirement and how they're going to be looked after by the state. What do the reports say and how is the government reacting to it? Basically, it's saying that, you know, 25% of the people in that age group, people in their 40s and 50s now are kind of taking it for granted that they won't be able to buy a house and they're looking down the future, uh, what's going to happen to them in old age. It's all very well if you're working in a full-time job. Well, it's probably not all very well, but at least maybe doable to be able to pay uh, a huge rent. But if you're on a pension, you can't pay a huge rent. And they're saying that there's a gap between what's being provided in terms of HAP payments and what the rents are. So that's causing huge difficulties. And we had that um, report from alone and threshold out today. But um, I was listening to a debate in the House this morning where the um, Minister uh, Patrick O'Donovan and the OPW was answering questions about various different things. And I thought it was very interesting. Richard Boyd Barrett mentioned uh, report and that's why I have my piece of paper here is because I would never remember the name of the report otherwise to that to me as well. <laughs> it's from the Irish Government Economic and Evaluation Service and Richard by Barrett was making the point that these guys um, they're you know a government organisation they published a report a couple of months ago and in that report they're saying that there's been huge success in terms of the amount of planning permissions that have been given on average, 85% of planning applications are allowed. So they're saying it's not a problem with planning applications, but that there's no follow through in terms of the building of those and that they actually make the point that a lot of this these planning applications are speculative and that it's because of land hoarding and people um, making these evaluate, making these applications in order to increase the value of their land, but with no intention of going ahead to build. So that's pretty alarming. Well, that, that talk isn't there of 70,000 active planning permissions that there that even if 10% of them uh, got moving in the next 
short period that will make a big difference. And the government says that it is going to try it's and ensure that them, yeah. funding is available to ensure that you get over that hump. Tommy, I mean, the opposition was leading the charge in relation to this. And some of the language being used in the oil, very strong in relation to say that this was a crisis you could have seen coming, but guess what? The government didn't deliver on it. Yeah, and I suppose the cohort we're talking about is, is small in number in terms of those in, in homeless homeless emergency accommodation, uh, but the impact on, on elderly people uh, is far more significant to those in, in rental accommodation because uh, if you look at the overall system, you, you know our system is built on the assumption that when somebody reaches a certain age, that they will have their own house, they'll have an asset. I mean, look at the fair deal for deal uh, for example, fair deal scheme for example, um, and. Uh, also making the point too that if you are old, an older person and you are in rental accommodation, that the importance of having security and of tenure uh, is far more important. That being turfed out of your home when you're of an older age uh, is, is far more traumatic than it might be uh, for a younger person. And Michal, this brings us back to the question of inflation. If you are on a fixed income and, for example, you happen to be on a pension and the rents are going up and the food is going up, uh, the price of the food, and you're not able to pay. So the most vulnerable in society, people like those who are on um, pensions, they're the ones who are going to feel it. Yeah, and that's becoming a stronger voice now. I suppose the measure of a society is always defined here is that how it treats the youngest and how it treats the oldest. I suppose the number of children who have become homeless, that has gone up uh, consistently over the last number of years. So while that has been emphasised a lot and is always emphasised as being a huge problem when it comes to homelessness and a huge part of the tragedy that it is, this is really the first time that we've seen a fairly loud uttering of the voice of elderly people who are now facing the same thing. Will it be enough uh, to make a difference uh, to prompt further political action that we haven't seen up to now? Well, maybe it will because it's different uh, and it's certainly striking a degree of fear uh, across government and across many people who are elderly and are on fixed incomes. Changing gear slightly, just onto the GA Go controversy, this paywall that is in place for certain um Hurling or football games, is it true that the people of Kerry are delighted with Diego, <laughs> that they're going to look after all the hurling stuff, whereas the main game is going to be up on the TV screens? Well, I think football, when the the next round of football begins as well, there will be certain games uh, that will be behind the, the paywall as well. I think Kerry Mayo would be one of those games. So while it has been a feature of hurling thus far, and that's where the great opposition has come from, uh, that, that it is something that's going to be there throughout the championship. Uh, I suppose the point would be made there are more games free to wear than there have been before. The great difference in the championship last year and this year is that it's condensed way more games take place over a given weekend than they did up to now, uh, where the championship was spread out over several months. As a result of that, not everything can be shown free to wear. And if all games are going to be covered, if cameras are going to be at all games, well, then this is a way uh, that it was decided it could be done. There does seem to have been, because coming out of COVID and coming out of that, kind of situation and the fact that Sky had left the market and of course there was criticism when they were there that you needed a subscription to Sky to see certain games somewhere uh, within the general population there seemed to have been a view formed that there weren't charges for certain games anymore and of course that's become very clear as after the Munster Hurling Championship round robin games where they weren't available to see free to wear that a controversy has arisen RTE and the GA unfortunately once since the one of those games that was due to go free to wear the fixture was changed at the last minute uh, and it was as a result 
that did go behind the paywall as well. So that only added yeah. to it. Politicians have an ear to this kind of stuff. There is a, there's a story in Brown They wouldn't Donald. be taking advantage of the situation, well, Michal, would they? There's a story in Brown Donald O'Hare's book about some gathering of, of left-wing uh, political activists at some point, I think in the, in the 30s or 40s, and where there's an All-Ireland semi-final on, on a Sunday. And I think it's Sean Lamass comes into the meeting and he can't understand who everyone has left on the Sunday. And then people really begin to question his political judgment. So anyone who's in sight here and uh, is elected know the place of the of the GA and they know how important it is. And it it's it's a perfect issue for politicians to talk about. Yeah, and it was notable that um, the person who sort of kicked it off to a certain extent, it was already rumbling, but then it took on to another level, was the Taunish to me, Hall Martin. And uh, he made certain comments on um, Monday. And then there is the Fianna Fáil Parliamentary Party meeting in which no media is allowed to attend and we have no idea what goes on. But somehow, I don't know how, somehow it emerged from the meeting there was disquiet. that there was disquiet. Yeah. And, and among those people who was expressing disquiet was the Taunish, the Micheál Martin. Yeah. And of course the Taoiseach now, he's, he, even the he's, he's not happy either. Even though his own hurling skills probably were questionable, aren't they? We have that picture <laughs> online where he... <laughs> Is there a plan to review that? His ability that, to puck a ball um, isn't brilliant. Oh, we but like reviews. There, review. there, no, but is there a plan to review that um, whole business of not having the finals in September anymore? I don't know. There's a free-to-air sports review, isn't there, that Alan Dillon, uh, the Mayo player, who's been quite reticent in political life up to now, but uh, has been speaking a great deal. No problem this, this week. week. Yeah. Um, said needs to be published soon. That began in 2020. I suppose the, the system with RTE and GA Go is meant to be in place for five years, but the yeah. former GA president, Sean Kelly, saying this week he thinks it should be put to the membership uh, for review at the end of this season. And you think inevitably there's going to be some move in that direction, what that means for the contract, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, and I think he's someone who one would take note of. Well, if there's any way of charting uh, a way through difficult situations, like opening up Croke Park to foreign sports, well, Sean Kelly is the one who with a proven track record there. Tommy, we're not going to dominate um, this discussion by sport. Was there anything else that was going on that caught your eye? Because it certainly felt like this week that even though there were substantial issues being discussed and um, to a certain extent it was like, um, not that I would do it every day, but popping a, a sort of a, a bottle of champagne and no fizz coming out. It's quite quiet, it's quite flat. It's not as busy as it has been in previous years. Uh, I don't know why exactly that is, but uh, there is a a sense that perhaps things are a little bit quieter um, at this present time. Uh, No major controversies rumbling at the moment, more smaller scale things. Um, Of course, today, as Michal said, we did have that offshore wind wind energy. Oh, Perhaps you could tell us more. I was about going it. to say you're pointing my. No, no, I. I could, me also give me a piece of paper. I could one hand page, it back over. Like Albert Reynolds, it's all on the one page. I suppose one of the things that strikes me about this particular issue, on the one hand, it is substantial that you do have this first auction. We're talking about offshore Look at wind. Not even notes yet. I'm not even looking at um, But there is that sense of it, which was that planning as an issue still uh, dominates, and we did have the Climate Change Advisory Council chair expressing concern that. Deadlines were going to be missed. Why? Because of planning. Uh, you're talking about housing and the demand for housing. One billion not spent, four billion being put in year on year. And yet, why is it not happening? We are hearing planning. We did have a government review, which went on for 12 months. Why aren't these things changing in your view? What's the sense um, as to whether it's housing, whether it's something as important as offshore wind in the context of the climate change debates? Why are we not just able to do stuff? Why do other countries seem to be able to do stuff and we don't? 
But like I was saying earlier on about this report from the government organisation that came out earlier on this year that said 85% of planning applications had been awarded. So maybe it's not the planning that's the... Maybe it's not the planning applications that's causing the difficulties. I know with the wind energy thing, they're going to have to look for planning permission for all those. And, you know, it's they're such huge projects. Uh, you know, the worry about how it's going to affect uh, sea life and the underground seafloor and all that, I suppose you would imagine it would take a long time to make an environmental impact assessment and all that stuff. So I can understand in a situation like that why it would take a long time to get a planning application through in that instance. Maybe Micheál Lehan, to a certain extent we hear that um, Ireland should be at the fore or the front or the lead in taking on these things. This is a real question given that the size of this country, the resources we have, the scale we're able to apply, that we shouldn't be trying to be a world leader. What we should actually be is somewhere in the middle of the pack and once someone else, a richer economy like Germany's made the mistakes, we can learn from them and carry on from there. But if the potential is there and if the, if the area is there off sea and the wind is there, I suppose it is a notable and admirable kind of ambition uh, of government, whether it's delivered or not. There always does seem to be a gap in the, I suppose, the enthusiasm that Eamon Ryan seems to speak of these things and then people uh, in the industries away from the renewables who, who say, that it's going to take quite some time to bridge that gap. And of course, they lobby government very hard to, to say that things like further expansion of the, the carob field uh, should be on the cards. Um, Tommy Meskell, is there anything else that's sort of coming up? One of the things I was looking at was uh, some of the um, reports and submissions to the Electoral Commission have been posted online. Individual parties, individual politicians are suggesting the way that this uh, really important body should report because what we know is that from the end of August, or that's the deadline, sometime before the end of August, the Electoral Commission is going to produce a report and that is going to dictate the size of the constituencies for the general elections which are approaching. And I think to a certain extent, at that stage, we're going to have the first real evidence of uh, and being able to make a real calculation as to who might be um, at the forefront, who could be at the back. And it's all available. Everyone can go on to the Electoral Commission website and just have, have a good look at it. That's not quite that exciting. <laughs> <laughs> it's exciting. For, for the politicians in this house and indeed those outside of this house hoping to someday be elected to this house. Uh, it, it Maybe is Paul a, is. <laughs> a big deal. No comment. <laughs> Yesterday, I think, was the deadline for, for uh, submissions. Uh, then at the end of this month, we will have uh, the final data in terms of the census. And then, it, as you say, the end of August, I think, is when the commission will do its work. Uh, it is a big deal for, for, um, for politicians. And many of them will decide whether or not to contest certain elections uh, in times to come based uh, on what this commission comes up with. Um, but they have been putting in their submissions in recent times. Um, some of the things they're calling for is for country boundaries to be respected. That's a big thing for politicians, for increases in numbers of seats in, in various areas. Um, the cynic might say all in the hope that they could better their chances yeah. of, of being elected. Um, but I think for, for politicians, as I, as I say, in this house and indeed hoping to get into this house, uh, it, it will be a, a big deal. Of course, this is all being done because our population is being is increasing uh, and we have to have a certain number of TDs uh, per 30,000 of the population. I think it's one per 30,000. Exactly. And behold, I say things can go wrong. I mean, like the, one of the most famous cases here in recent years wouldn't it be with Jerry Buttermer losing his home base of Bishopstown. He was recognised as being the person who had lost like the most. Yeah. He was the guy. The huge chunk, yeah. 
Yeah, yes. it, it can be career defining in that sense. If something were to happen to the likes of Swords, would that put great pressure on Labour's Duncan Smith? If something were to happen around Mallow moving uh, out of the Cork East constituency, how much pressure would Sean Sherlock be under? It's those kind of questions, uh, especially for politicians, uh, even though is any politician uh, very young anymore in the sense of when it comes to, to weighing up their career and, the, and the, long, the longevity of their career in here, but they will be seen as the younger politicians where, where there's a lot at stake now. And and from your estimation, you've seen a couple of elections. So maybe the Electoral Commission is one thing, considering boundaries, but it's also the sense in political terms, do you really want to go and do it again? Is this something that you really want to give another crack of five years at? Well, especially if there are major changes in your constituency that's going to have implications for you. But also, I suppose, you know, if you're looking at a constituency that's now a three-seater that's going to move to be a four-seater in the next election, well, you know, you might say, ah, sure, I'll throw my hat at it one more time in that kind of a situation. So, yeah, it's like the politicians will be keeping a very close eye on that. That's for sure. I like the way you personalise that. I may throw in my hat. Is there anything I should read from that? <laughs> Absolutely not, Paul, no. <laughs> it's um, funny, the Taoiseach saying at the Fine Gael PP last night was it that there's some of their first uh, local election candidates have, yes. been, have been selected. And there was a video subsequently oh, really? posted at the meeting. Oh, great. Yeah. I must look at that. But, I was uh, going to say, I thought you were finding it exciting. What's interesting, though, there's no boundary changes for the, for yeah. the local elections. Yeah. Uh, and yet it's only now maybe parties are really beginning to, to move and getting those those candidates in place. And of course, there is a degree of burnout, uh, as we, we heard on the Week in Politics last week in relation to councillors as well. Yeah. Uh, not not wanting to stay around political life at local authority level for a long time either. And Tommy Meskel is our European expert. He's our man in the European Parliament. We are hearing that there is going to be maybe one extra seat, possibly two extra seat, seats with an election coming up in May and next year. Tell us about that. But where does it go? Will you have an extra seat in Ireland South or will you have an, an extra seat in Midlands Northwest or, or will there be a redrawing? And even in terms of the European elections, I think there's speculation about certain people. Will they, won't they run? Uh, and Like I think, who? Like who? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think they're, they're keeping their cards close to their chest Good until answer. they see the outcome of, of this uh, Boundary Commission. Uh, and just in in reference to what Michal was saying um, uh, and the local government areas, uh, one man who, who isn't uh, keen on retiring anytime soon but has spent uh, a huge chunk of his life at local authority level is Christy Burke. And I, I was doing a report with him on this last uh, summer and he is one that is calling for, for an increase in the number of councillors. He's in Dublin's north inner city and making the point that the demands on, on politicians in areas like that are, are just increasing as the population increases uh, and people like him would make the point that yes, if you are increasing the number of seats in the Dáil, th- then why wouldn't you do it at local authority area level as well? One final question, uh, it's interesting at leaders' questions when the Taoiseach or the Thánais are answering. I, I, over the past sort of year, we're hearing far more Irish language being used in those answers, maybe two or three sentences, four <laughs> sentences. Um, but it's notable. Has Leo's Irish got any better? Oh, it's great for us and, and to be encouraged, widely encouraged. <laughs> I spend my life going around asking them to speak a bit more Irish in the thought. So I think it's great that they are doing it. I think it's important that our leaders would be heard to speak in Irish in the Dáil. So I applaud them for doing it. And yes, I think Leo's Irish has improved a good bit. Even yesterday, it wasn't just during leaders when the debate was on about Europe. I heard he used quite a lot of Irish in, in that debate. And I know in the House at the minute, um, 
there's going to be a debate about CETA, I think, this afternoon that is being came as a result of a debate in the Irish Language Committee on the implications of it in in particular in Gaeltacht areas. So I, I think it's great to see more Irish in the doll. I'm all for it. And it's it you, you take it as a general positive. This isn't just sort of like doffing the cap, I must say something on Irish, um, but it isn't of real value. You think this is like a change and it's substantive? I think it's great. I think there is, of course, an element of the politician saying, oh, I better say something in Irish. You know, m- there is an element of them doing it for that reason. But for whatever reason they're doing it, I think it's a positive thing because I think it's important for people who are learning Irish, you know, school students who are learning Irish all through the country should, would hear our leaders speaking in Irish. And I think that it's very important that politicians feel that they have a duty or an obligation to speak in our first language in the Dáil, in the Houses of the Parliament. I think it's massive. If you can't see it or you can't hear it, you can't be it. Yeah, 100 percent. Yeah, yeah. Thanks very much. Wrap it up there in Irish now, Paul. Thanks, Michal. I'll get you back next time. Thank you very much for listening to your politics podcast from RT News. I'd like to thank my guests, Simon, Tommy Meskel and Sir. Can you read that? We'll be back next time next week. Thanks for listening. Take care.